Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome to LawPod. My name is Zoe and I am joined by my peer Charlotte. We are very happy to have Professor John Barry joining us today from the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics here at Queen's to discuss matters surrounding climate change and the activism that is urgently required. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Zoe and Charlotte. Thanks for the invitation to come and and speak with you. So as you said, I'm a professor in HAP with a happy school. I'm also co-chair of the Belfast Climate Commission and I also co-direct the Centre for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action here at Queen's University, Belfast. And also, full disclosure, I'm a recovering politician, having been a, a former leader of the Green Party in Northern Ireland and seven years uh, a Green Party councillor in Hollywood County Down, where I live. So I'm an activist and an academic. So, John, you research a lot into transition and just transition and mapping just transition in Northern Ireland. For those who are new to the concept, can you explain what just transition is? Well, the concept of a a just transition is at the heart of the intersectionality between uh, the climate challenge or climate crisis. I don't use the terms climate change because... uh, Calling it climate change is like calling an invading army unwelcome guests. You know, here we are um, just over a week after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change last Monday released uh, one of its most chilling reports in terms of, just to give some figures, the science is really, really clear and it has been getting clearer over the last number of years that um, to keep um, global average temperature to 1.5 degrees, that's the safe Uh, degree of climate change we have to peak in our greenhouse gas emissions by 2025 so that's just less than uh, three years away and then we have to have global greenhouse gas emissions by uh, the end of this decade so the the challenge is very very significant Um, and at the heart of it has to be that the transition to a low carbon climate resilient society and economy including significant changes we have to make in our education system, which we make it into, um, has to be about making people's lives better. Uh, it can't be about uh, uh, the an injustice to, say, those who are in fuel poverty, of which we have uh, an enormous amount uh, in Northern Ireland. We have some of the highest um, fuel poverty levels in Europe, in part because of a combination of oil for space heating, where unique most other countries, it's it's gas or uh, heat pumps or some other renewable energy form. We are very dependent upon oil. And sadly, and particularly for students listening uh, to this, you may live in really badly insulated housing, of which, we again, we have a major issue. So the, 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 the just transition is about ensuring nobody's left behind as we move away from an oil-based uh, economy into a, has to be said, a climate-changed world. And we're going to have to adapt uh, a lot of our urban spaces to the inevitability of storm surges, of sea level rises, and invest in things like green and blue spaces in our cities to cope with that. So all of these changes that are the science is telling us is really, really clear we need to do, we have to do that in a way that doesn't um, you know, further make people vulnerable or reduce their resilience or indeed harm their, their ways of life. But the good news is this, and again, reflecting on that IPCC report from last Monday, 10% of the global population is responsible for up to 50% of what we're talking about here. So in the changes that we're talking about, we have to remember issues of class, and that's an issue of justice. There are also issues of gender, and certainly in, in different parts of the world, it isn't folk in, in Africa or the global south that we should look towards in terms of you know, making the biggest changes. It's the uh, 10%, particularly of the global north, 
uh, of the rich, the middle classes, you know, sadly, probably a lot of people that are listening to this, we, we are part of that 10% and it's our ways of life that are unsustainable uh, and unjust. So the just transition has to have a, if you like, an intersectional dimension to recognise issues of gender and class. There's a global dimension to represent the difference between North and, and South. And then finally, in terms of this just transition, justice has to be intergenerational. Because if you think of, you know, Greta Thunberg and the young people striking for, for climate, they are the ones who will inherit a much more degraded world if we don't act now on the climate. So that justice has to be global. Uh, it has to be intergenerational, but also has to be around uh, class and gender. Yeah, I think with just transitions at the minute, perhaps it, it's time for it to go further than just you know, statistics and what people are envisioning that maybe it needs to take that step further for the coming generations? We're, we're way past the time for um, action. We, you know, we've had, we might get into this, I mean, many um, governance institutions, whether it's Belfast City Council in October 2019, the Northern Ireland Assembly when it got back up and running in February 2020, the UK Parliament and the Irish Parliament in May 2019, they all declared climate and ecological emergencies. And then, if you forgive my language, WTF, question mark, so what? What did that mean? How has our lives changed because our governance uh, institutions, our parliaments, our councils uh, have all declared these emergencies? Uh, one would be forgiven for thinking this was a piece of woke, hypocritical PR to enable politicians to say they're down with Greta and the young people striking for climate, uh, but actually nothing being really done. So I would accept the importance of, of a vision. You know, again, I speak as a not even a lapsed, but completely collapsed Catholic. But the Bible does have some good lines in it. And one of them is without vision, the people perish. We need a vision, an attractive vision of a green, low carbon, sustainable future that people actually want. I mean, part of the problem with the green and climate agenda is it's seen as uh, apocalyptic for many people. It's seen as negative. It's presented in a language of sacrifice and what we're losing, which I, I don't uh, buy at all. It's about what, what we, can, we can gain in this different type of economy and that really we should present a vision of a low carbon climate resilient economy that's attractive. That's like getting a postcard from a wonderful holiday destination and that's all there. But there, there is an issue that we have to move very, very quickly. I'll give you the figures. 2025 global greenhouse gas emissions has to peak and decline and go down to at least half by 2030 to enable us to get to net zero by 2050. Now, that's in the lifetimes of anyone who's listening to me uh, speak now. These are the changes that are going to have to happen over the coming decades. And that's why I do think, um, well, we have an election coming up here in uh, May 5th. And therefore, if you do have a vote, ask people looking for your vote. And this issue that we're talking about is important to you. Ask them what, what are they or their party going to do on this? I do applaud the young people striking for um, the climate. I do applaud Extinction Rebellion uh, and Just Stop Oil and Insulate Britain. Many of these direct action groups have perhaps done more to put this issue on the agenda. Yes, people don't like often their tactics and I would have issue with some of the tactics they've chosen. But people are angry. They are exhausted um, in terms of the possibilities of using the normal political system. It just isn't working. You know, the final point I'd make is that we're just coming out of a few months ago, uh, the big conference of the parties or COP26 that happened in Glasgow. I call it flop 26 in terms of the absolute failure of uh, the world's governments, particularly the governments of the US and most European countries, to deliver, for example, the $100 billion a year that's been promised for the past 15 years to go to countries in the global south who are suffering the worst impacts of climate breakdown hasn't been delivered. The rather milk and water response that we even have here in Northern Ireland on the back of our climate change bill, it's a rather modest bill. And just look how difficult it was for Edwin Poots, uh, the DUP minister, uh, and indeed the Ulster Farmers Union, who did so much to reduce the ambition of that bill. And the bill we have now, it's OK. It's better to have something uh, than nothing. And we need that legal force to drive decarbonisation. But I have to say, it, it does give you a sense of the challenge. The science is really clear that we need to move very, very quickly. But the attitude of a lot of our politicians and indeed maybe some of our citizens is that, uh, oh, we can delay action. 
So while it's very difficult to find climate denial now in a way that was much more common many years ago, I think our problem now is climate delay. So climate delay is a new climate denial, hence the lack of climate action, and hence why people are beginning to take more direct action because the existing governance system uh, is not working quickly enough. There are examples of activist legal challenges. The Organda case in the Netherlands, similar case has been taken in Australia, where essentially governments are being uh, um, criticised for not doing enough to protect their populations from the impacts of climate change. And I would, particularly if you know a lot of people listening here are law students or people interested or active in the law, we are going to need, I think, a combination of street activism, that non-violent uh, citizens, you know, using their their voices, even if they haven't got a vote, combined with, I think, um, legal activism of the type that we've seen, you know, as I said, in, in the Organda case in the Netherlands, in Australia, or indeed what wonderful um, legal firms like Client Earth are doing in really holding corporations and states to, to account. For our listeners, you've mentioned the Dutch case or Genda. Um could you explain the context of that case uh, just for those who don't know already? So essentially this was, uh, as I mentioned, a piece of legal activism where uh, an advocacy group, I forget the name, in the Netherlands is kind of the equivalent, I think, of Friends of the Earth, took the Dutch government uh, to court for um, basically calling them out that there was a gap between what the science was saying in terms of the climate action needed in the Netherlands to protect Dutch citizens and the existing climate legislation that was in place. And so it's a good example of using the law uh, where, of course, there's already existing commitments for climate action, but we're actually saying that they're insufficient. So in other words, it was a wrap across the knuckles for the Dutch state that they had to up their game in having much more, you know, um, ambitious and science-driven targets. The climate crisis is really has to be, you know, approached in a global, on a global scale. So obviously something that has happened globally would be COVID-19, the pandemic that we are living in. Um, do you think that perhaps governments or people should be viewing and reacting to climate change, climate crisis, the same way we reacted to COVID-19? Absolutely. I mean, we now need um, wartime mobilisation given, and I'm not trying to frighten people and people can criticise that kind of language, is that we are facing an existential threat um, and we do need the types of action we saw during the pandemic. And it's an awful pity that some of the lessons that were learned during the pandemic have been forgotten. The pandemic is what a real emergency looks like. So we've had these rhetorical declarations of, a, of climate and ecological emergencies by all those institutions, governance, city councils, you know, the Assembly, the UK and Irish Parliament, and we've not seen action. The pandemic demonstrates at least two things of the many things it shows us. One is that the state can move quickly. And it's the state, not the free market, that actually saves you in the context of an emergency. Um, the, also, that citizens can react in very solidaristic ways. Yes, there, were, there was an uneven reaction. You know, I think historians might look back and, and see that the early part of the pandemic was the great toilet roll famine, you know, with people fighting over toilet rolls in supermarkets. So it wasn't all, uh, you know, um, sweetness and light. But by and large... Uh, people did accept the legitimacy of staying at home, furloughing workers, social distancing, wearing masks, washing our hands uh, and restrictions in at early parts of, of lockdowns in terms of our movement and so on. You know, there is an issue about the overreach by the state as well, which I think we need to remember. But by and large, it showed that determined state action um, coupled with social solidarity can and did rise up against the challenge of COVID-19. I think we're going to need that, but on steroids to deal with the planetary crisis. We need to get people to change their lifestyles in everything from how we eat, how we heat, how we transport ourselves, including, as I've mentioned already, how we educate our young people. I think our current education system is unfit for purpose for the, for the world that's emerging um, into being. And I think in some respects, the pandemic has been a lost opportunity um, for the governments not to use that um, legitimacy of state action 
because in many respects, what's happened the last 30 years is that our governance systems, particularly around the economy, have swung too far in the direction of neoliberalism, of the state stepping back and let the market in. And it, we've shown that in the context of a crisis, whether it's the COVID pandemic, and by the way, the COVID pan pandemic is part of the planetary crisis. It's not a separate crisis. It began in Wuhan, hands up who knew where Wuhan was before any of this happened. And again, while it's not conclusive, the epidemiological and other evidence seems to suggest that it's the encroaching of human beings into more and more areas of wilderness. So we're basically terraforming the planet. We are taking away uh, wilderness and ecosystems. And in that process, we are now releasing pathogens and viruses that human beings never came up against before, one of which, of course, is now, um, you know, COVID-19. And then it looks like that a bat bit a, a, um, bit a pangolin, which is a, a mammal that's often uh, used in what's called the wet markets in, in China, basically raw bush meat. And that's how the virus uh, then spread through globalization and our, um, you know, transportation system. So I'd be very strong on the idea that the pandemic itself is part of the planetary crisis. And the more we don't get a handle on the biodiversity and the climate crisis, it increases the chances of more of these pandemics in the future. And all of this should not frighten people. You know, obviously, that's what I think and the science is there, I think, to back that up. But to see what type of world and economy we can create in dealing with that, which is a better world than the one that we are currently in, you know, to finish on the, the issue of the pandemic, and there was, there was lots of talk of building back better, um, you know, last year in terms of using um, the opportunity of the pandemic almost reboot certain parts of our economy. And we've had some examples of that where, for example, the mayor of, of Paris, she was a very unsuccessful candidate in last night's French pres presidential elections, Anne Hidalgo. But in, in Paris, she instituted a 15-minute city as part of our response to the pandemic in terms of ensuring that nowhere uh, in Paris are you more than 15 minutes away from either cycling or walking to get to a GP, uh, to go to a shop or some other public or private um, good or service that you can get. And so there's a good example of using the pandemic as a way of changing for the better. Even here, although it only pop up, you must go down half a mile from here on, you know, um, Dublin Road and so on. We have temporary cycle lanes. Now, we should have you know, permanent cycle lanes, in my view. But there's an opportunity of using the pandemic to, you know, come out of it in, in, and, and start creating a different way of, in that case, transportation. But sadly, I think a lot of people um, didn't take heed to those like me who were challenging the, uh, to, the going back to normal narrative. What? Why would you want to go back to normal, as in the pre-pandemic uh, world? The pand that was ecocidal. Uh, it wasn't working for everybody. It was incredibly um, inequality producing as an economy. But I think that's now what's won out is that return to normal, a bit like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, clicking our ruby red slippers and wanting to go back to, you know, pre-pandemic 2019. And I think that's been a mistake. Uh, and But there are lessons that people should learn in that the state is still powerful. The state still can act in the interest of its populations if it has the political will to do so. And certainly in the UK, we've learned Mrs. May, the former prime minister, was wrong. There is a magic money tree. Money was made available to buy PPE, personal protective equipment, pay for furloughing workers and so on. But even apart from that, um, you must always ask, why is there always money for war and not for education? The issue is never really, in my view, that there isn't enough public money, is that the political will isn't there. And so we do have the funding, we have the technology, all the technologies we need, but what we need is the political will. And there we're back to, we're going to need citizens to demand better of our politicians and governance systems to create the, the policies, the regulations, that, to change our infrastructure in energy and transport and food and so on. So for me, we don't need any new technologies. They're all there. But what we do need is the political will. And it has to be a democratic will of citizens who want this. So you mentioned education. Um, so would you say education then would be a key tool for handling the climate crisis over anything else? Or would you say that we need more policies? It's all, it's all of those. And I, I think education 
has to be viewed both in forms of formal education and speaking as obviously a, a professor and educator myself, I, I do think that our education system from primary to secondary to university is not fit for purpose for this. I think we, need to, we do need to include things like climate and carbon literacy skills in even in primary school. We need to embed ecological awareness and knowledge within our curriculum throughout all the years so that students are able to understand and know the local flora and fauna, to know about the local biodiversity in their area because I think we need more place protectors. I think we need more people to be aware of the beauty that's around us, to understand that what looks like a barren heath or a piece of you know, bogland is teeming with life. But you, you, you only know that when you, you have the knowledge. And certainly I think um, it's a performative contradiction, to be polite, for Queen's University to be invested in fossil fuels, which it is, although it hasn't released how much of its uh, investments are in fossil fuels. And, and to you know, demand of the university to answer that question, well, if it's wrong to wreck the planet, how can it be right to profit from the wrecking of the planet? Because it is the fossil fuel industry that we need to leave as quickly and as justly as as possible. And I do think, though, there is more to be done. There is an obligation on behalf of particularly well-paid professors like me. I'm not saying every colleague in the university should do this. But at this moment of crisis and opportunity, what is the university doing? Obviously, we should get on and do our research and teach our students, such as your, you know, yourselves. But I think we should be doing an awful lot more in terms of getting it into the media, talking about our work, uh, going to meet faith communities. What would Jesus drive, for example, if you're a member of a faith community? You know, speaking to the Orange Order, the GAA. There's a whole range of organisations out there that I still think are not really aware of the significance of what's happening here. And if universities aren't going to step into that space who is. So I do think there's a, if you like, a non-formal education job that we in the university have a particular opportunity to do in terms of that public education. Uh, but certainly no Queen's University graduate should graduate unless they've had some teaching, they've had some exposure and maybe a compulsory module on the climate and ecological challenge. Whereas for most students, um, they will go to their university degree in some respects, coming out with knowledge and skills which are ecocidal. Particularly, I would say, I reserve a particular criticism for my colleagues in the management school in the teaching of economics, uh, which is completely ecologically illiterate. There is no you know, sense in our uh, economics curriculum that students understand that economics is about energy, it's about gender injustice, it's about colonialism and the legacies of imperialism. You can't understand the world economy without these things, yet most students, uh, certainly at our university, but we're no different than others, will not have any sense of that history, that sense of injustice, or indeed that sense of the ecological embeddedness of uh, ecosystems as important understanding the economy. And it may even be the same for law. I don't know. I think it's a very different way of looking at the climate crisis um, by comparing it to how the world tackled COVID. Um, I think it really affected everyone's life so, you know, so much that um, it's really made me view the climate crisis in a different way um, and really what the government isn't promoting or the government isn't showing us um, the things that really need to change. Um, throughout history, there have been, you know, political social movements that have claimed to eradicate poverty and promote social inclusion. Um, however, there is a gap between uh, declarations by the government and the action that is needed. So what do you think inhibits governments to make these changes to benefit basically the globe as we are in this crisis? A really, really great question. I mean, there's a combination of political economy, which I'll explain in a moment, and capitalism, which we've not spoken about. I mean, to me, that's the major driver of the planetary crisis. I mean, people don't wake up um, one day and say, how can we wreck the planet? Um, there are larger structures in terms of, for example, uh, I'm in industrial dispute with my university and I've been on strike about my pensions that have been stolen from me and my colleagues. Pension schemes which themselves are invested in fossil fuels. 
So th this is how complex our situation is. It's not as um, simple as saying there's a bunch over there of them, capitalist oligarchs. And isn't it interesting how we refer to Russian billionaires as oligarchs, but our own millionaires and billionaires are not in the same class. That's one to ponder. Why, is that, why, is that, why are they oligarchs and are a lot as cuddly Richard Branson and, and Elon Musk and so on? Um, but I don't think it's as simple as identifying the uber rich and these elites, although they are part of the problem of our uh, very unequal society under neoliberalism. There are also issues of ideology. Most of the world's politicians, certainly in the global north, the minority world in Europe, North America, Australasia and Japan, whether they're politicians, ministers, uh, civil servants, have all been schooled in neoclassical economics. The very economics I mentioned a moment ago, that's ecocidal, ecologically ignorant and extremely pro-market. In my view, the teaching of economics in most universities, if there isn't a variety of different ways of understanding the economy, it's ideology, it's propaganda that they're being taught one way the world is rather than saying, well, you can have feminist economics, there's African economics, there's green economics, uh, there's Marxist economics. There's many ways. I'm not making any judgment as to which of those is the correct one, but at least it gives students a palette, a variety of understanding how the economy can be organised. And part of the problem is that our governance systems in the state system at central national government or in local government, to the extent that our policymakers and politicians uh, are in positions of power, that's their only understanding of the economy. They don't have an ecological background. Most of our politicians come from a, from a law background. is probably the single biggest discipline, maybe a business background, but they're rarely from a scientific background. And I always tell my students, imagine an economy designed by a scientist. It wouldn't be a growth-based carbon capitalist system. That doesn't make any ecological or scientific sense. So there's an issue of ideas and knowledge that we don't have knowledge being deployed to influence policy. I'll give you an example where Northern Ireland could maybe give a template. We have Section 75 in Northern Ireland, the quality proofing, you know, uh, many of our public uh, bodies and so on. Well, what about future proofing, sustainability proofing, climate proofing our policies in terms of major infrastructural investments in, in energy or our, our, our food system? So one is the issue of, of knowledge and um, the lack of ecological and scientific knowledge being used in the policy system. And the pandemic gives an interesting insight into how things could be otherwise. Now, it was uneven, but on the whole, most governments used epidemiological and public health knowledge to inform their responses. So there's another, if you like, benefit of looking back in the pandemic of a science-led response. Well, where's the science-led response in terms of the climate? Because we have the science, which has been pretty clear for at least three decades, if not more. We need to move away from fossil fuels. We need to change how we heat ourselves, how we eat and so on. A plant-based diet turns out to be the best one for the planet and also best one for human beings in terms of a healthy diet and so on. So what's stopping us? So ideas and knowledge is one thing. The other one is, this, is the raw power of very powerful actors in our society. Fossil fuel companies are not going to simply roll over and say, yeah, the game is up. We're, 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 we're moving off the pitch now to enable solar and renewable energy and so on. They, for decades, have been um, querying the pitch, I want to use that term, in terms of um, propagating junk science in the same way that the cigarette manufacturers did back in the 70s. Oh, there's no connection between smoking cigarettes and cancer, which, of course, we now know is the case. That for decades, BP, Exxon, Mobil, these very powerful corporations, some of whom have turnovers that are bigger than whole countries, that's how powerful these actors are, they have been you know, powerful enough to promote in the public's mind seeds of doubt. Oh, is there a connection between burning carbon and climate breakdown? And they have delayed in that way um, action. And I think a lot of the blame for the current perilous state our planet is in should be laid at those very powerful actors that in particularly America, but also in the UK and elsewhere, they are paying lobbying politicians. You know, if you were to get a, do a, an FOI, a freedom of information request, and ask how many times has Rishi Sunak the treasurer met 
oil corporations as opposed to trade unions. You'll quickly see where the government's um, interests lie. It's even more open and transparent in America, which is, of course, the best democracy money can buy, is that the power of the oil lobby is what we call in academic terms, it's called carbon lock-in. It's locking us into a carbon-based future. So I would just, you know, it's a much more complex issue, but for simplicity and also just for reasons of time, the power of ideas, the fact that there is genuine ecological and climate ignorance amongst many of our decision-making um, classes and our politicians, but then also the power of these very powerful corporations. And as I said, even my own pensions fund, the USS Pension Scheme, which we did have a, a campaign many years ago to divest from fossil fuels, but we, we lost it. So that's how complex this issue is, is the way we've created an economy that is uh, hooked on carbon energy. And if you don't believe me on that, I'll put out a, a question, which I always ask quickly in public meetings. Anyone listening to me, and wherever you're listening to it, perhaps if it's different if you're outside walking, but if you're inside listening to this podcast, can you name anything in the room that you're listening to this from that isn't made in whole or part or transported in whole or part without the use of oil? It's very difficult, even my contact lenses I have in, the really bad coffee that I had for my breakfast, uh, my terrible uh, sartorial dress sense made from synthetic nylons and so on, all of which are based upon oil as an energy source. The power that uh, we're now using the electricity to for this podcast comes from Kilroot Power Station, which is a gas-fired um, power plant. So all parts of our lives are now addicted to fossil fuels. And it's that addiction which explains things like the difficulties with the current Russia-Ukraine war. That is a fossil-fueled war. Because Vladimir Putin's able to sell Russian coal, oil and gas, that then gives him a war chest to fund the Russian army. So again, the, the climate and the planetary crisis is connected to what's happening in the Ukraine. That our burning of fossil fuels creates geopolitical instability, such as what we're seeing in Russia. It also explains, by the way, folks, why we had an illegal war and occupation in Iraq in 2003. That was purely a war for oil, except this time um, we justified it in the West because it was Britain and America invading Iraq ostensibly to free the Iraqi people from um, Saddam Hussein. But actually, it was a war for oil. So the argument here is that here's another reason for making the transition beyond an oil-based economy, that we'd have a geopolitically safer world. Um, rather than, so we'd have climate breakdown arrested or at least uh, reduced and also prevent the likes of, you know, uh, invaders like Vladimir Putin. But also, let's not be seeing that the West is somehow holier than thou. And to use that language of addiction, when the West invaded Iraq, it was like a junkie beating up or robbing a little old woman to get the resource they need for their addiction. Our societies are addicted to oil. And therefore, we need to seriously challenge, uh, you know, ourselves as citizens in terms of moving away from oil. But at the same time, just to finish and go back to the to the just transition, those who work in the oil industry, the coal industry, the gas industry are not climate criminals. I think too often the green climate message is perceived by if you're a North Sea oil worker or you're a coal miner in Appalachia or you're a gas worker in, in uh, the Netherlands, uh, you're, you're seen as, a, as the enemy. These people did a tremendous job that was asked for them. And a lot of the infrastructure of our current societies has been based upon carbon energy, coal, oil and gas. But now we have to honestly say to people, it's time now to move beyond carbon. And that's where another gift or insight from our Northern Ireland context can help in this. And again, you probably need a, 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 an entire podcast just to be devoted to this. We are going to need processes of conflict resolution as we move forward. There is going to be inevitable conflict uh, in this. Trans it won't be smooth. And so therefore, I do think, you know, unfinished and imperfect as our own peace process is, there are lessons we can learn across into the, the, this transition we're talking about because the transition is inevitable. If we don't want to cook the planet and create a, an apocalyptic world for the next generation, we will have to make this transition. But whether or not it's just, that is the key issue. The transition is inevitable, but whether or not it's just is not. I find it very interesting that um, you say in the world of law at the minute, um, 
technology is a big issue, one of the big uh, drivers for law businesses and law firms. So perhaps changing that mindset into putting environmentally friendly like ideas first rather than technology or working together would be good. Um, in terms of technology, the media is obviously a massive um, driver to impart information to students, to um, people on the streets. How do you think that this could be used better, in a better way? I mean, the sad reality as somebody who's been writing and, and speaking uh, on this for 30 years, if you're interviewing Kim Kardashian rather than me, that would have an amplified effect. Millions of people would be listening to the pearls of wisdom falling from her lips. Of course, I'd have to write the script and, and so on, let her know what she has to, has to say. Uh, and that's celebrity. I know that's kind of separate from, from social media, but uh, social media is a very useful platform to amplify messages. A lot of crap on it as well, it has to be said, and a lot of disinformation and post-truth. You know, We can also see in social media the path to Donald Trump uh, maybe via Putin and the manipulation of uh, of people's um, news feeds via algorithms and so on. I think that's a whole area that needs a lot of uh, attention. But certainly social media, particularly for younger people, and it's only older people like me that I think use Facebook and so on. It's Instagram and TikTok and, and, and Twitter and so on. And I do think these are useful platforms to communicate messages, not least um, as somebody who uses Twitter quite a bit. There's a great discipline in having so few characters. I mean, academics are notorious for, you know, why say it in 10 words when you can use 50? Whereas Twitter means you've got to speak in a language that's very, very direct. Now, that's also a downside. It lacks nuance. And then, of course, you've got the trolling and the misogyny. But there's absolutely no doubt about it that human beings in, in, in dealing with this crisis that we're facing, we have all the tools we need. We are globally interconnected, you know, even in, you know, countries that may have less resources than we do in Africa. People do have access often to the Internet and so on. So we can have a global conversation and communicate on on these issues. But there is also the, the case that um, the downside of a kind of a and this is not just about social media so much, but a, an undue focus and faith in technology, which I would call techno optimism. There is a dominant and not unreasonable view that people have of a, what I would call a plug and play version of the future that are uh, biofueling the Hummer is another analogy I use. So we have this current society that's based on carbon, it's polluting, it's uh, unequal and so on. But what we do is just take out the bad energy car and we stick in renewable energy. Now, I think that is probably the dominant view. I think people want to continue with our current ways of, of life, but, but just with low carbon and so on. I think that's a mistake for two reasons. One is that scientifically it will not solve the issue. Um, there is no capitalist, is no technology that's going to solve our problems. We are talking about a fundamental change in all parts of our society. That's the only thing that will give us uh, um, a chance to rise to the challenges and opportunities of, of the planetary crisis. But I do think, and of course, we're doing an example of it today, to use podcasts to get the message out there and that everything I've said, people can contest. You know, it's not just that what I say is, is correct. And that's where I think the likes of social media often fall down because people don't engage often in rational debate on social media. It's a mistake, particularly if you're an academic like me or, or students like yourselves, to um, to view that social media is not like a seminar where the force of the better argument and there's a, a due consideration of the view of the other. Too often on social media, you attack the person, not the argument, particularly if you're a woman. It has to be said, I mean, the high levels of misogyny on social media. But still, it is a useful platform to begin uh, in particular, I, I, you know, be like John. If you're using social media, be friends with people whose views you disagree with. Too often on social media, you end up in an echo chamber. Oh, I don't like that person because they vote TUV or DUP or whatever. Now, I'm not saying we should be friends with outright fascists and people who don't um, accept any modicum of human rights. But I do think there's too quick a tendency to only talk amongst people like us. 
the reality is, and again, we're back to the Northern Ireland situation in terms of not just conflict resolution, but building understanding, is that you make peace with your enemies or your opponents, not with the people that you already agree with. And as I say, we are at the beginning stages of people accepting that we have a, um, a challenge, but there's going to be very different views about how we um, go about that. I would be a socialist if not an outright Marxist in, in my analysis in terms of, you know, uh, looking at the ways in which we need to decommodify energy, for example, remove energy uh, out of the uh, commodity in terms of it being based on your uh, ability to pay. Education, I think we should remove from being a commodity. You know, the NHS, one of its great socialist, you know, let's not forget, it was founded by socialists in the, in the post-war period, was that your ability to pay didn't come into it. Your your need for healthcare was was paramount. So I think my vision of a, of a green sustainable future is much more in an amplified welfare state model, a bigger role for the state, uh, democratized, where we actually begin to see things like free public transportation. Uh, but it does also raise the issue of you know what can students do, you know, in terms of the action that is open. Um, to us, pick for those who live in democracies. I mean, we've got to remember a lot of people around the world who may be as passionate or concerned about this issue as I am or other people are listening. Uh, they don't have the same, uh, you know, rights and, and, and liberties that many of us do live in democracies. I'd say three things, particularly for, for students or, or citizens. Uh, one is educate. So don't just trust what I'm saying uh, about this issue. Go and read the science. Go and get a, a variety of opinions, even those who deny the climate. See what they have to say. So, you know, before you make up your mind, you know, open it, you know, that old adage. So I think educating ourselves, which goes back to the question we spoke about, about, you know, how we don't have enough um, opportunities in our formal education system for pupils and, and students to really engage in these issues. So educate yourself. And the Internet, of course, is a wonderful resource now that we can use to go and find um, information and satisfy ourselves about these issues. The second one I would say is agitate. Uh, and that's where it is everything from, are you in the tra uh, trade union movement? Are you a member of the students union? If you are in a job or a placement, what's that uh, organization doing? Is to use whatever influence you have with your family, your friends. Because I think actually older generations can appreciate some of what I've been talking about. They've lived, particularly our grandparents' generation, they lived in a world that was less climate damaging I'm not saying it was ideal, it was homophobic and, you know, a lot of the influence of regressive institutions like like churches and so on. But not all of those ways of life uh, were necessarily bad in terms of people were closer to the earth. They, uh, our food system was much more sustainable. It was the you know, era before high globalization. And we've seen under you know, the pandemic is that when our food system is coming from around the world, that is very dangerous because that, that can be interrupted. And if nothing else, two things that I think the pandemic has taught us, which would have useful lessons for the climate crisis, is have your food as local as possible and have your energy system as local as possible. Whereas Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland is one of the most energy insecure parts of Western Europe. Even though we do have high levels of renewable energy, we're still very dependent for our car mobility and so on on imported oil. So educate agitate and, and by that I do, you know everything from youth strike for climate you know um, being active in a political party or lobbying your local MP writing to your local press if you are active in a social or uh, other organization or a church group is to be using those institutions what are they doing on this issue and so on so that's agitate and then the last one is organize is that it, we do need more conversations like this uh, to be able then to push governments. I mean, it really is that the governments are going to have a, an important role in this. And the first role of any government is to protect its people. And our governments at the minute are not fulfilling their duty. The, again, the case in a way is an example of that, is that the risks and vulnerabilities of uh, climate breakdown need to be recognised by our states and appropriate mitigating policy infrastructural changes and so on need to be put uh, in place by our, our governments. And that's going to require organization, uh, including, you know, for yourselves listening who may be considering careers in law, is the discipline, the you know, the way law is currently organized, is it fit for purpose for these issues? 
you know, uh, should students at Queen's University Belfast be lobbying the School of Law for more modules uh, on these issues? Because I'm not a, a legal scholar, but I appreciate, as I've mentioned, the role that law has to play in this. But we rarely have an opportunity, you know, sometimes I think in, in the academy we're some of the dumbest, smartest people ever. Why aren't we bringing all the disciplines we need, whether it's law, politics, economics, you know, engineering, and have that interdisciplinary conversation so that you, for example, as law students may be interested in this issue. But what does an engineering student have to say about this who may be working on solar panels or you know, renewable energy and so on? We have so many great ideas that I think we're not often bringing them together in terms of like crowdsourcing hope. And that's the most important thing, just to finish off the, this podcast, the most important thing that I'd like people to take away is hope. You know, too often we go from awareness of the climate crisis to despair. And I get that, particularly if you've not come across it before. But there's always hope. But hope comes through activism. Hope cannot be passive. Because at the moment, just to, you know, summarize some of the things I've been saying, at the moment there are two very passive and I would say suboptimal responses to all the things I've mentioned. On the one hand, there's a doom and gloom apocalypticism. It's too late. And, uh, you know, I can understand why people might say that, particularly if you look at the, uh, the, the sad legacy and the lack of action that we've had over the last 30 years. And for some people that I would know, um, they call themselves now recovering environmentalists because they say it's just simply too late that whatever we do now, we've baked in so much uh, change in the years ahead that it is going to be an apocalyptic future. I don't, want, I don't want to go there uh, because I've got kids. And I think when you have children or you have any concern for the next generation, you want to have some hope. So that apocalypticism is also passive. It means you don't have to do anything. It's too late. So what's the point in doing anything? The other passivity we see, which is the more dominant one, uh, and I mentioned it already, is techno-optimism. That somehow a technology, whether it's carbon capture and sequestration, geoengineering, solar radiation management. These are some of the science fiction and, in my view, batshit crazy ideas that have been seriously promoted as a way, a way of dealing with the climate crisis. And the reasons I think they are so dominant in our political elite and indeed less so in our media and probably among citizens is that particularly for younger people listening, but not only you, I think for most people in our societies, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So why is that? Why is our culture and our, our, our current social trajectory in terms of our evolutionary history, why is it we can't seriously question creating a different economic system that's going to keep people warm at night and so that people in the village, not half a mile from where we're at now, if it's a cold night tonight, as it looks like it's going to be, there are people in our wealthy society, in an island off an island off a very wealthy continent in Western Europe, they're going to have to make the decision do I heat or do I eat? It doesn't have to be like that. But it does mean we have to squarely, in my view, challenge carbon, our energy system, and certainly challenge capitalism. Because for me, there is no capitalist solution to this crisis. We are at a point where we have to move beyond this particular economic system, which in its current iteration is at most 50 years old. It hasn't always been like this. We have lived in societies where there's been less capitalist ways of organizing the economy where there was a time, and this may come as some surprise to the younger listeners, particularly those of you at university, there was a time when it was free university education, when you got a grant, where our societies invested in you as young people without you having to have the burden of taking out a loan or having a debt. And I often think with sadness, how many geniuses, how many solutions have we lost because a young person from a working class background has made the decision that it's not, it's not my ability, my academic ability, but my ability to pay that will determine whether I go on to university. And that's why I would unashamedly and proudly advocate for a socialist transformation. Now people say, oh my God, communism, the Soviet Union. And that is the wrong way of thinking about this. I'm talking about a different type of society, the type of which we probably haven't seen maybe since the heyday of the, the welfare state, certainly in Britain in the 1950s and, and 60s. So we can learn lessons from the past, even as we think about the, the future. But take it from me, kids, there is no capitalist solution to the climate crisis. We need a post-carbon, a post-growth 
and a post-growth future. And you know what? It's grand. It's going to be okay. Don't look at the future in apocalyptic terms, but it does require a sense of anger and agency and urgency. And I actually think that the pandemic stopped, I think, a, a, a growth, particularly in the youth strike for climate, which I took a lot of you know, uh, confidence and, and gave me hope. I think as the pandemic begins to subside, it's not gone away, of course, that we will begin to see more people, you know, understanding that this is a real issue. Um, and that's why we can use our democratic votes. We can use our democratic voice. We can use podcasts or other ways in which we can, you know, use whatever influence we have, because this is an existential crisis. Humanity has never faced what we're now currently entering into. And part of their problem is to make it real for people, but also to, you know, present the solutions, not naive ones like these, as I say, batshit crazy technical solutions. It is about saying, well, what about a relocalized economy, a three day working week, you know, where quality of life is more important than, you know, GDP and foreign direct investment. Very radical. And for me, that's where I'd like to see us putting our effort and almost to capture uh, innovation. Innovation has been taught at this university along with entrepreneurship. But I rarely see social entrepreneurship. Where are we seeing the university encouraging worker cooperatives as the way in which you can deliver on some great idea you may have to turn it into a business? Also, innovation is largely seen as technological and as commercial. Well, what about low carbon ways of, of, of living different lives? Innovation needs to be seen as social as much as it needs to be seen as technical. And for me, they're forms of, of, of agency that are based upon, you know, what we hope at the university we're giving our students, that knowledge is power. So arm yourselves. Thank you so much, John. That is, yeah, you've made me view things in a different light. Um, lots of different issues to be brought to the forefront, for sure, especially what students can do, what young people can do. Um, so thank you very much. No problem. Thank as you. you. As you can tell, I'm not backward about coming forward. Uh, mm -mm. You know, so more than happy to come back on again, and uh, you know, more than happy to you know, whatever way yeah. you edit this and so on. Um, it is important, you know, to, to to get these messages out there. So well done for, for doing it.